Good morning, everyone. Good, good to be here with you. Let's pray. Our dear Father God, we, uh, we do pray for our hearts here this morning. In some ways, it feels like we've been going in forward, and now we're slamming in reverse or taking a detour. So, Lord, we trust that um, we trust you in this process, Lord, that you use broken words and, and plans that weren't known about to, to help us in our lives where we're at. So I do pray for your spirit to work in that way here this morning through this passage. And uh, may those words of mine that are of you stick. And may those words of mine that are not of you fall away here this morning. And uh, thank you, Lord, so much for uh, the the gift of your word. Amen. Good morning to you again. So good to be with you. And uh, I wanted to have us start by um, thinking about a song, a song that was written by Bruce Springsteen. And the song is The Promised Land. In this song... Springsteen writes of a man who lives in a remote state, in a very remote part of that state. And this man is going through trying to figure out what's going on in his life to bring him to where he is feeling at a place of being stuck. Through the day, he sings of this man that he he works in his daddy's garage. And by night, he's chasing some mirage, trying to figure out what his life, what his dreams are going to be like. But regardless of what it means to chase some mirage, it's apparent that this man is stuck. He's stuck doing what he does during the day as best he can, but not finding fulfillment in so doing. Here's the second verse. He says this, I've done my best to live the right way. I get up every morning and go to work each day, but your eyes go blind and your blood runs cold. Sometimes I feel so weak, I just want to explode. Explode and tear this whole town apart. Take a knife and cut this pain from my heart. And in the chorus, you may know it, he he sings this. The dogs on Main Street howl because they understand. If I could reach one moment into my hands, Mr. I ain't a boy. No, I'm a man. And I believe in the promised land. Now, while Springsteen could be singing about a variety of things here in this song, for sure. I believe that for this morning... He is singing about our text that we've just heard read. The dogs on Main Street howl because they understand the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. It's been gro- it's, this is the story of all of creation, but not just of all creation. It's the story of us as well. We know what it means to go to work each day but, and to do the very best that we can, but then to feel this pain, this pain that we want to have cut away from us on the inside. So what are we to do? We are to follow perhaps what the character in the song says, because amidst the hopelessness of his circumstances, he sings out, Mr. I ain't a boy. No, I'm a man. I believe in a promised land. He finds a hope that saves in the promised land. And we too need a hope that saves. Why? It's because we live in a land of hopelessness. Earlier this month in the Gallup Press, there was an article released called The The Mood of the World. And in this article, we read, "At, at this writing, the U.S. Census Bureau finds that a third of Americans are showing signs of clinical anxiety or depression. And as anxiety and stress soar, so does hopelessness, it says too often followed by suicides, including uh, the type of suicides that are acknowledged as deaths of despair. Living life in such a way that we are bringing harm upon our body in such of the slow motion suicides. 
In 2020, it also adds the Gallup found that roughly seven in 10 people are struggling or suffering in their lives. So in light of this hopelessness, we need a hope that saves. The problem is that many of us, me included, don't trust hope from time to time. We are familiar with the English football phrase, it's the hope that kills you. Or perhaps you're aware of, um, there's a quote in the movie Shawshank Redemption. The character played by Morgan Freeman, Red, says this to Andy Dufresne. He says, hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. It's no use on the inside. You'd better get used to that idea. We've been let down by hope in the past. So the question is, what are we hoping in? Jobs, savings, retirement, families, our health, our stuff. Perhaps it's the idea of progress, that things will get better and there will be cures. N.T. Wright, in his book, Surprised by by Hope, writes this. um, And he writes about something he calls the myth of progress. The real problem with the myth of progress is it cannot develop a strategy that actually addresses the severe problems of evil in this world. That is why all the evolutionary optimism of the last 200 years remains helpless before world war, drug crime, Auschwitz, apartheid, and the other interesting sidelines that evolution has thrown up for our entertainment in the 20th century. So what this means is that regardless of the next great thing that Apple is going to put forth, that I certainly will be interested in in seeing and hearing about, regardless of the success of the SpaceX program or whatever pronouncement Elon Musk is going to make next, which is really exciting, and regardless of whatever cure is going to happen, a cure to that thing we thought would be incurable, regardless of those things, none of those will give us a hope that truly saves because none of those truly deal with the problem of evil. We need a hope that saves. And so today in our text from verses 24 and 25, we talk about this hope that saves. And we'll ask, what is this hope? Why it saves? And how do we hope? So first of all, I want to look at what is this hope? And we see this hope in verse 24. So if you have the Pew Bible, go there. Um, the NIV is, is pretty, pretty good translation here. And, um, and we see in verse 24 that... Um, one of three things about what this hope is. It's one that saves. Verse 24 says this, for in this hope, we were saved. At last, there it is. This is the hope, whether you believe it or not, whether you admit it or not, this is the hope we have been searching for. It is the one that saves. What is this hope? It's the one that saves. What is this hope too? It's one that cannot be seen yet. Look again in verse 24. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Why is it not seen? Well, it's not that it's invisible. Rather, it's it's in the future. It has not happened yet. The question is, what hasn't happened yet? Three things about this hope. It's one that saves. It's one that can't be seen. It's also what hasn't happened yet. It's one that comes with the moment when, verse 18, when God's glory will be revealed in us. It's a moment at which nothing else will compare. Not even the sufferings that Paul speaks about here in verse 18. It comes at the moment when all groaning will end. We see this in verse 21. All the dogs on Main Street, their sad howls will not be needed to to happen anymore. All the groaning will end. And it's a hope that happens the moment when 
we see there will be redemption. What sort of redemption? The redemption of our bodies. N.T. Wright writes of this redemption. God's people are promised a new type of bodily existence. The fulfillment and redemption of our present body. What this means is that there will be life after life after death. There will be life after life after death. And in that time where we, with the new heavens and the new earth, we will receive a new body, incorruptibly physical, not susceptible to decay. A body best depicted by the words of John in Revelation 21, when he says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It will be a chance to no longer look down into the eyes of those we love who lie there dying from cancer, but rather to look into their eyes as we prepare to receive an embrace from them in our resurrected body. This hope brings the redemption of our bodies, our adoption as sons and daughters. So what is this hope? It's one that saves, one that cannot be seen, and one that puts groaning to rest. This is hope. But why can we confidently say that this is hope? And the second thing, why it saves. What is hope? Second, why it saves. Well, first, the reason why we say why it saves is because, again, in verse 24, that's what the scripture says. It says, for in this hope we were saved. And we sit here thinking of all things. How can we be so confident? Because Paul uses that word hope. Why did it have to be hope? I mean, because rightly, when we use the word hope, I don't, we use it in a way that means, gosh, I sure hope that would happen. Um, for example, I hope that Mike Woodson, the new Indiana men's basketball coach, I hope that Mike Woodson will bring another banner or at least would help us to beat Purdue, maybe again. So... Um, that's what I hope in. But that's not the sort of hope that Paul is talking about here in this text. Hope here, in where Paul uses it and when the Bible speaks about hope, it's talking about something that has been promised, but that hasn't been received yet. It's talking about something that will happen, but it hasn't yet happened. As one theologian says, hope is the eager expectation of the future action of God. Another theologian says this, hope is the confident expectation of good. Or, maybe even best, as Romans 25 says, we wait for it with patience. Um, We wait for it with patience. And an even better translation says this, we eagerly wait for it with patience. So hope here, hope is the eager expectation of a future action. Future action. We don't hope with uh, wishy-washy uncertainty that it will that it might happen. We hope with a certain expectation that it will happen. We can count on it. We can trust in it. And why is it that we know this sort of hope to be true? Why is it that we know that this hope saves? It's because that this hope finds its origin in a very curious place. And we heard that hope read in verse 20 of our text here this morning. If you're there, look at verse 20. It says there, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Who is the one who subjected creation to futility? It was God. And God did this in hope. Why? Because he hoped 
that it might happen? No, exactly the opposite. He did so because he knew it would happen. Verse 21 says this, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God was in hope subjecting creation to futility with a confident expectation of good, that one day there would be no more groaning. This, um, Constantine Campbell writes of this, but this demonstrates that the hope of which Paul speaks does not carry the connotation of insecurity that is inherent with the English word. God doesn't hope things will work out the way he intends. Rather, he looks ahead to the certain fulfillment of his plans and purposes. This is a hope that saves because this is the hope of the one who saves. It's a hope that saves because this is a hope of the one who saves. And how does God save? How does he bring our groaning to an end? It's by way of the ultimate groaning of his son Jesus on the cross, who took our sin upon himself, who took our penalty of death by dying himself. And we now, this morning, can hope because Jesus died for our sins. And we can hope even more, not because he just died for our sins, but because he was also raised from the dead. Do you have this hope? Do you have this hope and are you looking to this hope? Or are we looking to other things for the hope that we are spoken of here in the text? I realize that there are so many other things that we put our hope in. Trust me, I do realize this. But all of those, apart from one, do not save. But the hope that saves is that hope which is found by being found in the one who saves. So what is this hope? Why it saves? Lastly, how do we hope? What does it look like to have this sort of hope? In verse 25, we've read already, but if we hope, we wait for it with patience. Or we eagerly wait for it with patience. So what does it look like to eagerly wait for something? And of all illustrations I could come up with, I can think of this. A chili cookout. About a month ago um, at our church at Redeemer, we had a chili cookoff. I don't know if any of you attended, um, but it was a men's chili cookoff. And I entered. I put in um, an entry. And the reason I did so is because I had had a chili uh, in January my brother made. And it was pretty darn good. I kind of took a note. If I ever, in a chili competition, I'm going to enter that. So sure enough, I, I texted my brother and he sent me the recipe. And when I got the recipe, 30 ingredients in this recipe. And so I began to study and to plot. What was I plotting? What stores I would have to go to get these ingredients. Many of which I had never even heard of. So I went to the local supermercado on the west side. And I got peppers that I had never heard of. And then I went to get these spices because I couldn't just go and get the regular spices. The recipe called that I take whole seeds and grind my own spices. So after buying those, I had to buy a mortar and pestle to grind the spices. Um, so I soaked my beans three days ahead of time, um, after which the next day I would grind the spices and then start to um, put it all together. And uh, so I did all that. And the next day it was time to make the chili paste. And in the paste, you could not imagine what went into that. So we put in, um, let's see, what did I put in? Soy sauce, I put in the spices, I put in the peppers, I put in 
ground coffee beans, I put in chocolate, I put in two whole anchovy fillets, yes, I put in, um, it was kind of interesting, I put in something called Marmite, very sticky, didn't know what it was, but it was hard to clean off the spoon uh, after I did so, and I ground that all up together, and I put it together, and, and then you've heard the phrase, whistle while you work that day, I simmered while I worked, all day long, I let that pot of chili simmer. And when it was all said and done, I um, put in Frank's hot sauce, I put in uh, some brown sugar, which sounds awesome, and then lastly, a quarter cup of bourbon. And I tasted that, and it was awesome. It was awesome. It was so awesome that when I took it to the chili competition, it garnered 4% of the total vote. It was great. Um, Even though only 4%, I thought it was amazing. And even my wife liked it. So shows you something. So why am I saying all this? With the chili, I waited with eager expectation. I eagerly waited with patience. And what I did that whole time, I kept an eye on the instructions. I didn't know what was next, but I had to go back and say, what did I do before? What comes next? And what do I need to do? I kept an eye on the instructions. And then, you better believe, I tasted all throughout the time. I was sneaking tastes and the smells, they were great. And then I kept that pot simmering the whole time. So the question is, what do those things have to do with this passage? Particularly, what do those things have to do with this passage that comes in the context of great suffering? All of this passage is mixed in with hard suffering. So I think the thing that has to do with this and and how do we eagerly wait with patience is this. In what ways do we keep the pot of our faith simmering? You're here this morning, which is awesome. How are you here this morning? Are you here in an effort to hear our Father speaking to us? How do we go about reading God's word? How do we stand to sing? How do we hear God's word read to get through it? Or to listen through very broken words in a broken sermon to what God might have, right? How are you tasting and seeing that the Lord is good? What does that look like for you in life? I hope that we all have a story of how we're tasting and and smelling and experiencing our Heavenly Father, our brother Jesus. And what does it look like for you to keep your eyes on the instructions? Yes, to, to look at this word and to know that there are instructions in this word. But more than that, to look at this word and keep your eyes on what this is all about. It's on the one who saves. Jesus is the hope who saves. How are you keeping the pot simmering? How are you tasting and seeing that the Lord is good? And how are you keeping your eyes on Jesus? The author of Hebrews says this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So that is what we are to do, to fix our eyes on Jesus. But here's something that you should know. We fix our eyes on Jesus because he is our hope. But the one we fix our eyes on is also one who hopes as well. Because this passage says this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The one we fix our eyes is fixing our eyes on something himself. He is fixing his eyes on the joy that is set before him. What is that joy? 
The joy is you. The joy is me. That joy is him reclaiming us, him restoring us, him redeeming us to be the people he is calling us to be. His taking our sin upon himself, his taking our groaning and putting it to rest, his giving us the redemption of our bodies. That is his joy. So as we hope in him with confident expectation, he is hoping in us and what he will do in us with a confident expectation as well. So with that, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this word hope. God, I pray that we would always think of it differently than just, gosh, I hope that will happen. But might we think of it in such a way that, oh Lord, we can't wait till that happens because you are the one who in hope subjected creation to futility. Lord, perhaps this morning we need an encouragement to place our hope, our confident expectation in you with whatever situation we know we're in. Those situations where we don't think anyone else knows, but Lord, you know, and you would give us this gift of hope. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.